Empire. The world is still not completely connected in real time. Those top two teams from North America fly to Hawaii, where there's a, a undersea fiber cable that runs direct from Hawaii to Tokyo. And huh. so we can now set up a, a cloud server in Tokyo, and you're connecting players in Hawaii directly to Tokyo, and then the players in Korea and China also directly to Tokyo. That's John Spector, head of the Overwatch League, where speed of light connections aren't exactly there yet. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. Esports has exploded during the pandemic. Right place, right time, and also, as we know, this was an avalanche that was already rolling downhill long before COVID-19 came. Interestingly, though, the inability to hold live events isn't just a loss of revenue for esports leagues, it has also exposed a liability in connection. Like, can we get everybody playing at the same time without an advantage? Our guest this week is John Spector. He's the head of the Overwatch League as we've gotten through, for the most part, a pandemic, and they are pivoting to a number of online initiatives. John, it's a pleasure having you here. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Bram. How are you? Well, um, I'm good. I hope you're well, too. Tell me a little bit about Overwatch League and what the year has been like dealing with the pandemic. Yeah, so... Tomorrow on on Friday afternoon, we kick off our 2021 season for the Overwatch League. It's our our fourth year of competition now. Overwatch League is the the pro competitive circuit for the game Overwatch. We have 20 teams uh, based all over the world in in the U.S., Canada, Europe, uh, Asia, and in Korea and in China. And those teams will duke it out over the next five or six months to see who's the best this year. Um, Did the pandemic slow anything down? I mean, we're talking about a digital medium here, but you know, there's the loss of connectivity. There's the loss of live events, obviously. Can you kind of, kind of take me through how you guys got through the last year or so? Yeah, it's, um, it's been a complicated year for sure. So in, in 2020, our season plan, we had scheduled 52 live events all over the world. And our plan was to run global competition with the you know the best players traveling around the world to, to compete with each other we, we managed to play five of those they, they were awesome and really just great events with with sold out arenas thousands of fans in attendance really good feedback from whoever who got to go um but then you know just over a year ago needed to pull the plug on that pretty quickly uh, i think um one of the things that, that our team's really proud of, we were dark for just two weeks after we um, after we pulled the plug on, on live events. And we managed to sort of take all of the broadcast and production infrastructure and the competitive infrastructure and pretty rapidly pivot and bring that into an online and remote production environment, which is now the world we've been in for about a year. Tell me a little bit about Project Aloha, which is one of these these pivots. Can you tell me about what that is? Yeah, so last season when we were competing online, um, one of the big limitations that we had to deal with was really around kind of connection speeds and internet latency, which 
for for you, for me, like this is stuff I would never notice. But for our professional players, like hundreds of a millisecond can matter to them. And so we had players in Seoul and in China and, and in North America, as I was mentioning. And you can't really facilitate a great internet connection between players that far apart from each other across the world. And so we we ran our competition last year online in these two regions where the teams in Asia played each other and the, and the Western teams played each other. And it, it led to some great moments and some great competition. But at the end of every one of our tournaments, you had you had two winners up until playoffs and finals when we were able to, to crown one champion. Huh. And I, I think like you have two winners, right? And the, the first thing that any fan or of, of any sport would say is like, who, who's better? Who, who, <laughs> right. You know, like there's, there's not, a, yeah. not a lot of room for, you know, for, for two first places in sports. And so our, our biggest priority for the 2021 season was how to tackle that issue. And so our solution we, we've called Project Aloha. Um, it's, it's sort of a a name internally that, that we made up as soon as we settled on Hawaii being the solution here. So what we're planning to do this year now is um, for each of our tournaments, we'll sort of start regionally with the, the teams in the West playing each other and the teams in the East playing each other. But then when we're down to just the final couple of teams, we'll have um, those top two teams from North America fly to Hawaii where there's a, a undersea fiber cable that runs direct from Hawaii to Tokyo. And huh. so we can now set up a, a cloud server in Tokyo and you're connecting players in Hawaii directly to Tokyo. And then the players in Korea and China also directly to Tokyo. And that point to point is fast enough that we're going to get great competition and, and be able to run global events this year. So take me through, go back to the, just the concerns and the, and the difficulties of having the connectivity issues. Was it an integrity issue or was it just a, they can't connect at the same speed and therefore how can we have a game with them? Yeah, it's actually both of those issues at, at once. And so like the, the first thing that you're trying to do is, is minimize connection speeds for all of the players competing. Um, and to use a, a more simple example, right? If you have a team in California playing against the team in, uh, in Florida, you're going to want to try to find a server location in the middle of the country, pick, you know, Iowa or Texas or something like that. Um, and so in this case, the issue was first that if you have, players in New York and players in Korea trying to play against each other, like no matter where you put that server, someone's connecting at 200 plus milliseconds, which is, again, I, I don't notice that if I'm surfing the internet or watching Netflix, but is an eternity for yeah. pro gamers. Yes. Um, and, and so that's sort of the first issue. And then the second is that, yeah, they, they look at, okay, one team is connecting at 50 milliseconds and the other is at 80 milliseconds. And the team that's at 80 is going to say, that's not fair. We're at a disadvantage. So we, we had to solve both of those problems this year. And the first piece was, if we get the North American players to Hawaii, then a Tokyo-based server allows both teams to connect at good enough speeds to have a great gameplay experience. And then also, we built some technology this year in, in the Overwatch game where we can set a level playing field. So even if players would normally be connecting faster than others, we can sort of set a threshold where everyone is now at the same level playing field. All right. So I don't want to ruin your trips to Hawaii because that sounds great. Um, <laughs> off of a pandemic, I could use a vacation, but 
Um, long term, uh, do you see the technology changing to where this won't be an issue in the next, I don't know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years? It would be nice. Um, I, I think there are, and I'm not the, the network expert on our team. I've, I've had this explained to me 10 times by the brilliant people uh, doing all the network engineering for us. But there's first sort of a speed of light physics problem of no matter how optimally you could route uh, a gamer in New York to try to play against someone in Shanghai, you're going to have this real just how fast can information travel. And then sort of the second issue is every time that a connection gets handed off between two networks or goes into you know a server rack somewhere and then onto another cable, you, you add a little bit of latency every time you're sort of hitting one of those switch points in the global networking infrastructure. So I think the second one is probably easier to address than a, a speed of light problem. But I, I think there's also potentially uh, gameplay innovations or other types of things where, where yeah, maybe in the, in the longer term future, this is an easier problem to solve. But I, I'd also add that hopefully when we get out of the pandemic environment, like tr- travel and immigration become a lot easier again. Yeah. And then, right, like the most obvious solution to this problem is, well, if you want players in Shanghai to play players in New York, like have the players in Shanghai fly to New York or have the guys in New York hit right. Shanghai. And that, that's just really, really hard right now. And so we've, we've had to innovate this type of solution around those restrictions. Um, it kind of, you know, listen, I, the, these platforms and their growth is not only because they're, they're fun and they're interesting and they're so technologically savvy, but there's just a global attachment to it. Can, can you kind of pandemic... Um, how you guys viewed turning this into a larger and larger global community that played Overwatch? Yeah, I think one of the really special things about Overwatch specifically actually has been that it has a truly global player base and and that we've been able to build a a global fan base around it. Like Overwatch League today, we have players from more than 20 countries competing in the league. Um, and as, as I mentioned 20 teams all over the globe. And so our aspiration since we launched Overwatch League has always been to put sort of this, this global competition front and center. And whereas I think when you, when you look even at like the most successful um, traditional sports who have in many cases done a fantastic job of growing their audience and their reach around the globe, like most of them still have some sort of a nexus or a hub or, you know, this is a U.S. sport that has done a great job of marketing itself in Asia or yeah. a European sport that's expanded really well into India. And we, from day one with Overwatch League, built this global competitive infrastructure that I think has really helped to build and grow a, a fan base in, in many different countries. You worked with the NBA, so I think you're referencing something that you know, which is the NBA is a United States-based best basketball league in the world that has roots now specifically in Asia and in Europe and other continents. Um, what was your experience with the NBA and what did you take with you as you came over to the esports world? Yeah, I, I love my time at the NBA. It was um, it was a fantastic learning opportunity. I think their reputation as the most innovative of the, the big traditional sports leagues is, is really well-deserved. It's a, a league that I think has consistently done a great job in the digital space and of, of building stars with their players and growing audience revenue, et cetera. Um, for, for me, moving over to esports, um, 
I think a lot of those lessons about digital engagement and audience growth and how to put on great live events or things that have been really relevant and helpful. Um, on, the, on the flip side for me, one of the things that I've most valued or enjoyed in my, in my time with Activision Blizzard and Overwatch League is when you're a four-year-old sports property, it's, it's a lot easier to, to innovate and to adapt yeah. and to say, right, yeah. like, we, we don't think we have the right number of games. Okay, ch- change that. Whereas, you know, for for any of the big sports leagues, like the process for the NFL to add a new game was exhausting for them. And, uh, you know, sort of a, a culmination of a long effort, and that was to add one game. We've been able to look every season in Overwatch League and say, what did we like about the format last year? Or what did we like about our broadcast product? But also, what are we hearing from fans? What are we, what are we seeing in terms of innovations from competitors or others in, in the sports and entertainment space? And, and how do we make things better this year accordingly? And, and we have a degree of freedom to operate that I think a lot of the big sports leagues don't. That's really interesting. I mean, we've talked to a lot of people in, in both worlds and some that cross over to both. And the ability to be nimble is is uh, underrated, clearly, clearly underrated. Um, and it is an advantage for esports here as they as they continue to grow their audiences worldwide. Yeah, I, I think it helps a lot for us, right? Like I, I'm a big baseball fan and I think, you know, when, when you look at the number of games in baseball, like there are a whole bunch of reasons that make sense. And, and if you want to change it, then you start to run into all these issues of, you know, who, who's your home run record holder or things like that, where you have a century plus of, of history and tradition and the, the mound is at 60 feet, six inches. And, and those things get really, really hard to change. There's just a, a degree of inertia around it. It's how people yeah. grew up playing the game. It's what they grew up watching. And so even if you think it should be 61 feet or 60 feet or whatever it is like that, that's really hard to change. And again, that's, that's inches. Yep. It is. Um, let me ask you about competition though, because um, you've had experience with the NBA and yes, there's other basketball leagues, but there's nothing like the NBA and, and there's other baseball leagues. There's nothing like major league baseball. And while they're not nimble to do some of the changes that, you know, I think they'd like to do or want to do, um, they also don't have any real specific competition um, in the esports world. I've been trying to kind of understand that landscape. There are a lot of games. There are a lot of popular games. There are going to be new ones that are going to come along and become very popular with players as well. Um, how do you kind of view competition in the esports space? I sort of think about it in, in kind of two different lenses. The, the first, I think it's really easy, um, particularly, and I, and I say this having been a little bit guilty of it myself previously. Um, I think for for people looking at esports from sort of the broader sports and entertainment background side of things, it's it's actually pretty easy to lump them all together and say esports is like one sport, right? It's it's one ecosystem in the same way that the NFL is the football ecosystem. Whereas I, I think the the truth is somewhat closer to the NFL and the MLB and the NBA and the MLS are all in some ways competitors, but they're also playing different games and, and attract different audiences and have strength in different demographics. Esports is, is like that a lot too, where Overwatch is a pretty specific game and the people who are drawn to that type of game, yeah, there are some similar games and, and competitors in that space too. But I, I don't think, you know, Overwatch competes directly, for instance, on the esports side of things with some of our other titles like a Hearthstone or a World of Warcraft, which are just 
pretty fundamentally different types of games. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing I'd say though too, and, and I, this hopefully comes across sincerely because I, I mean it this way. Like I, I really, my, my deepest hope for esports is that in five, 10, 20 years from now, multiple successful esports leagues are fighting with each other for market share. Yeah. Like that, that is the thing I most want to have happen for our industry. And, and where we're at right now, I, I think uh, genuinely I'm rooting for the success of every single one of our competitors. I yeah. think it's, good for the space. Yeah, I, th- I I agree with you. And, and I think that that dream is probably a reality. But but, you know, to your point about, you know, like all of the traditional sports leagues, um, you know, they, they kind of work with against one another, but they're also in their own silos. I agree with you. The idea of a new sport coming along that would capture imagination, though, and would then potentially be a true competitor to NFL audiences, NBA audiences. It's far fetched, you know, in esports there's any number of games that could just pop up almost any given year that could capture imagination. So it definitely is a very different type of competitive landscape. Yeah. I think it's certainly gaming moves faster in that regard. Um, And I think one of the things that um, it's actually pretty rare in, in gaming is to have that kind of staying power as, as a franchise and to be, relevant not just the three months after you've launched or the six months after you've launched or the year after you've launched but to be relevant for a, a decade two decades etc there's not a very long list of video game franchises that a decade later have tremendous cultural relevance um but, but when you look at that list i, I think actually activist blizzard is very disproportionately represented there with franchises like Call of Duty or World of Warcraft or StarCraft, where um, these are franchises that I think have sort of transcended um, that kind of day-to-day or year-to-year popularity in a way that they've just become more ingrained in in gaming culture. And they've been successful for for more than a decade in, in every case. And Overwatch is a newer game, right? We're we're celebrating the five-year anniversary. But our hope and our aspiration is that it's one of those types of games, too, where decades from now, the franchise is still relevant. John Spector is the head of the Overwatch League. Thank you so much for joining us, John. Thanks, Bram. On the next Future Sport podcast, the venues of the future keep popping up. I think this put a spotlight on it. I think COVID put a spotlight on it. And I think that uh, you know all the institutions of these regions, especially sports teams, have a, have a responsibility to step up and, and help do their part. That's Jared Shawley, COO of the San Jose Earthquakes, on the unique partnership that is shaping how the return to live events will become more and more seamless and integrated. That will do it for this episode. As always, the future is now. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. The Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3Advance, developers of sports tech apps that are AI-powered and UX-focused. So if you're looking to create some apps for your startup or your sports biz calls for some artificial or business intelligence, you should check out 3Advance. They're incredible. Go to 3Advance.com. That's the number 3Advance.com.